This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. This is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. Here is your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Susan David is the author of the best-selling book, Emotional Agility, Get Unstuck, Embrace Change, and Thrive in Work and Life. She's one of the world's leading management thinkers and an award-winning Harvard Medical School psychologist. She's a frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review, the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, and appears on national radio and television. She was named to the Thinkers 50 radar list. That's people shaping the future of organizations and management. And she is a fellow, not only on the Thinkers 50 list, but also fan of the great Austrian psychiatrist, Victor Frankl, who is one of the founders of uh, existential psychology movement and has great wisdom to share, which has inspired both Susan David and me. She is the CEO of Evidence-Based Psychology, a co-founder of the Institute of Coaching, which is a Harvard Medical School McLean Institute affiliate, and she serves on the scientific advisory boards of Thrive Global and Virgin Pulse. She has a fantastic TED Talk and a really great story to tell. How did journaling save her life when she was in high school? Find out about this and more as you get set to listen and learn from a fellow psychologist who brings wisdom and insight for how to become more emotionally agile and more mindfully active in making smart choices about how to lead effectively in all parts of your life. It's Susan David. Susan David, welcome. Hello. Thank you. Thanks for connecting in with me. (laughs) Ah, well, it's great to have you here. Uh, So emotional agility is our topic. It's not so much about health or illness. It's something we can all strive for no matter what our circumstances, right? It's about taking small steps uh, and continually learning, but not about a specific content, a specific content or knowledge area, but about yourself, about how you are in the world. So before we get into specific applications and, and examples, first, if you could just give us a quick review for listeners, what do you mean by emotional agility? A brief overview. Fabulous. Um, Really, the focus of my work is on this concept of emotional agility. And the core question that my work focuses on is this question. Um, What does it take internally in the way we deal with our thoughts, our emotions, and our stories that help us to thrive in the world? Mm -hmm. Because we all every day experience thoughts like, am I good enough? Or um, am I cut out for this career that I really want? We have emotions, emotions like anger or sadness or grief. And we also have stories about whether we are capable of doing the things that we might want or even what relationships we're worthy of. 
And emotional inagility, the opposite of emotional agility, is when we get stuck in those thoughts, emotions, and stories, and they start driving us in ways that actually don't connect with our values. We might not put our hand up for a project because we feel we're not going to be successful, or we might let stress overcome us so much that we struggle to be clear-headed in our careers. Mm. Emotional agility, on the other hand, is the ability to be with our thoughts, emotions, and stories in ways that are curious and compassionate and courageous, um, but also to take values-connected steps, even if they feel uncomfortable, that are directed to being the people that we want to be in all areas of our lives. Mm-hmm. And so th- th- thank you for that overview. Before we get into how it works and how listeners can can adopt the ideas and practices that you offer in your book, Emotional Agility, tell us briefly how you came to understand this idea in your life and work. And I'm especially interested in how um, journaling uh, and what that English teacher taught you uh, helped you uh, to discover uh, these ideas in in the in in the in the uh, experience of your own life. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that I talk about in a recent TED talk that I did is how uh, I grew up in firstly apartheid South Africa. I was a white South African in apartheid South Africa. And I grew up really in a country and community that was committed to not seeing, to denial. Um, Because, of course, it's denial that makes 50 years of racist legislation possible while people convince themselves that they're doing nothing wrong. Hmm. And then uh, when I was around 15 years old, my father was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And what I experienced both in his illness and in his death was essentially this societal narrative that all of us experience, which is people saying things like, just be positive, you know, it'll be okay. Uh, and and doing almost similar to what I'd experienced, which is this not seeing. I was mm. in pain. My family was in extreme pain. My mother was raising three children under the age of 15. We were uh, financially ravaged. And yet as an individual, I became the master of kind of being okay on the face of it and yet internally i was really struggling um experiencing a downward spiral like so many young girls do i started to use food as you know a way to comfort myself um Hmm. i was really not doing well and one day this english teacher handed out these blank notebooks and she said and i felt like she was saying this thing to me which was write you know tell the truth Write like no one's reading, and I was essentially write like no one's reading. That that's really an important element, so that you can be candid and and not be concerned so much about social approval and social pressure. Absolutely, don't write for the person who's telling you to just be positive. Don't write for the person who you think you should be. Just write. You know, just show up to yourself Mm -hmm. in your grief and your pain. And what was fascinating is that simple act, that simple invitation was the most uh, remarkable catalyst for me because I started to face into the truth of what I was experiencing. And in a really amazing way, it actually became the catalyst for my entire career. I then became an emotions researcher. And what I was really curious about was I experienced that this writing process had helped me in a real way, had helped me to 
um, show up into the depth of what I was experiencing and then to move beyond it. And yet the narrative that we receive in our culture is very much the opposite. You know, it's like, just put on a smiling face, just get on with it. Um, you know, they're good emotions and bad emotions, the good emotions being happy, the bad emotions are things like sadness, you know, don't be sad, don't be angry. And so I was really interested in um, this idea, which is that we often are fed ways of being with ourselves in society that are actually, they might sound good on the face of it, but what we know from the research is that they are incompatible with our longer-term resilience. Really destructive. Destructive of our inner lives. Absolutely destructive. And even in the most everyday experience, you know, if if you're in a job that you really, really hate and you say to yourself, you know, at least I've got a job and you kind of rationalize your way out of your emotions, you can often lose the opportunity to shape your environment, to shape your experience, and mm-hmm. to make changes that are meaningful. And so it, it's it's such a, uh, a an obvious idea at some level, and it's certainly been around in modern psychology for 100 years. And yet there are societies around the world that don't seem to grasp or to know how to teach, uh, accept and teach the idea that our emotional lives are crucial to our our survival and and our certainly our ability to to flourish in life why what's your understanding as to the source of that resistance to just first awareness showing up so i think there are a number of reasons and you're absolutely correct that these ideas you know i think so often and i talk about it in my book emotional agility um of that beautiful Viktor Frankl idea um, between stimulus and response there is a space and in that space is our power to choose and in our choice lies our growth and freedom so when we're being emotionally in agile uh, we're being driven by our thoughts emotions and stories there is no space between stimulus and response Um, when we're being emotionally agile we can be in ways that are connected with ourselves they're not denying of ourselves but we can make clear-headed choices and move forward in effective ways. And I think that there are really, you know, interesting reasons around this narrative that like there are good and bad emotions. I mean, certainly, you know, Charles Darwin uh, didn't have the view that there were good and bad emotions. Charles Darwin described this idea that all of our emotions have evolved to help us to read the environment and to respond to the environment effectively. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, this, th- there's a very strong tradition in psychology, which is this idea that emotions have a function, they are functional. Um, but through the history of psychology, there's also this idea, the rise of behaviorism, this idea that, you know, if you can't measure it, it doesn't exist, which gave voice to the idea that emotions are somehow bad or, you know, that they're these things inside of you that are non-measurable and therefore are not um, valid sources of um, understanding ourselves. So there's definitely a tradition in psychology that has denigrated emotions. Um, and then in society, there is, with with very good intentions, this focus on being positive. And we, you know, we do it to ourselves and we do it to our children. We may shame our kids out of particular emotions that we see as being negative, or sometimes with really good intentions, we jump to solution. Mm. Um, but these strategies often stop us from really understanding, you know, what is this emotion 
helping me to understand about myself? What is it helping me to understand yes. about my values? It's it's a window into one's one's life that is necessary to look through, and yet it's painful. And it, and so, is that your understanding? Is that your take on on why it's uh, so common for people to want to deny or suppress or ignore their emotional lives? I think I think that it is painful, but I think that part of the suffering that comes with our difficulties around emotions is layered by judgments that we have, you know. Mm. So if you see your emotion, like if we see our sadness as this is like a, a data source, you know, this is a data source about I'm experiencing a sense of loss and disappointment to something that is important to me. What is this thing that's important to me? You know, I've never met someone who isn't depressed, who isn't at some level concerned about how do I better be in the world? Or someone who's experiencing uh, grief, where really what their grief is about, and I experienced this with my dad, is that that it's this kind of longing and connection and this experience of love with another person. And so often behind our difficult emotions are gifts, you know, to mm. to signpost to our values. Um, but when we live in a culture that basically says, well, you know, positivity is all that counts or happiness is all that counts and that sadness is bad or anger is bad, then we don't actually uh, surface the value that might underpin that emotion. Now, that's not again to say because I feel the emotion, I need to act on it. You know, there's a of very course big not. difference between, you know, feeling an emotion and saying, what is this anger telling me? Oh, it's telling me I care about justice. It's telling me I care about equity or fairness. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean I need to act on it. But there's there's often a value that is signposted by our difficult emotions. So, Susan, uh, describe to us briefly, if you, if you can, the, the, the key ideas that you take readers through in your wonderful book, Emotional Agility, in terms of the, what one needs to do to be able to become more emotionally agile and, and to gain all the benefits therefrom. Absolutely. So the first thing I talk about in the book is the opposite of emotional agility. So I talk about examples of how we often get hooked in to stories about ourselves, we get hooked into our thoughts and emotions, how we often move in ways that are autopilot ways. We might automatically respond by leaving the room when our spouse brings up a particular, you know, brings up a conversation or we might shut oh, down in I mean, I, I shouldn't. Work. I shouldn't be doing that. Is that what you were saying? <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. You know, it, well, you know, it's really helpful to kind of recognize some of the autopilot ways that mm. we get triggered and where we respond sometimes in in ways that feel so natural but again you know shutting down in the meeting might stop us from actually being the contributor we want to be in our careers and so the first thing that I talk about is this idea of what I mean by being hooked what I mean by being emotionally energile and then what I do is I and that that if I can summarize as I understand it is to be acting on uh, on habit and to be impulsive or just to not have that, that distance to be able to see what's happening inside so that you can act more intelligently. Do I have it right or what have I missed? Yes, absolutely. To use the Viktor Frankl phrasing, it's this idea that there is no space between stimulus and response. You you feel undermined in the meeting, so you shut down or you come home from work and you're stressed and so mm-hmm. you bring your cell phone to the table and there is no space between stimulus and response in a way that allows you to bring other parts of yourself, 
your values, your intentions, who you want to be as a as a partner, um, as a friend, as a parent, as an employee, as a business owner to the world. So what is the key to gaining some sense of mastery and containment of those impulses? Well, the first thing that we know is recognizing them as critical. The second mm-hmm. thing that we know is that paradoxically, when we show up to our sadness or we show up to the feeling of being undermined or we show up to um, the stress that we're experiencing. So instead of pushing it aside or rationalizing it, when we actually start to see it for what it is, Mm -hmm. the demon of that experience backs down. And so in my book, I talk about four key movements of emotional agility. Uh, Firstly, being able to show up to our difficult emotions. Um, The second thing I talk about is being able to do what I call step out of these emotions, recognize that they are useful, but they data, not directions. You know, who's in charge here, the thinker or the thought? And when we give too much power to our thoughts, uh, I'm upset, so I'm just going to be quiet here, then the thought is in charge rather than the thinker. So what's really helpful is not pushing these thoughts, emotions, stories aside, but being able to almost get a kind of helicopter view of them. And I talk about Mm -hmm. very practical strategies about how we can do that. For instance, Mm -hmm. oftentimes when people are stressed, they will say things like, I'm stressed. You know, it just becomes a very quick and easy phrase that we use. Yes, but it doesn't do anything. It doesn't say anything, does it? It doesn't do anything. It doesn't, you know, I could be stressed because I'm feeling truly overwhelmed at work. I could be stressed because I've got this gnawing feeling that I'm in the wrong career. Mm. Uh, and they're two completely different experiences. And when we use this very broad brushstroke label, it doesn't actually help us. Mm-hmm. And so we know, for instance, that when we label our emotions more accurately, I'm disappointed, I'm overwhelmed, um, I'm, I'm sad. That when we label our emotions more accurately, what it does is it actually starts activating what's called the readiness potential in our brains. And it starts helping us to understand the cause, but also what we should do about the experience. The readiness so, potential. Can you just define what that means in perhaps with an example? Yeah. yeah. So before we, before we move to a stage where we, you know, actually acting on our goals, before we move to the stage where we, you know, getting our resume together for a new job, for instance, um, mm-hmm. before we actually doing the action, our brains and our bodies and our minds start to prepare for action. And what we know from research in this area, it's called emotion granularity, is that when people label their emotions in more granular ways, so instead of using these broad labels, they're more specific and nuanced, that what it starts to do is it starts to help us to understand, ah, that's what my stress is about. It's that's what the issue is. And what I need to do in order to move through this successfully is this. And so this labeling actually helps to ready our psychology and ourselves for, for action um, in a way that just doesn't happen when we don't actually label, when we just vent the emotion. Mm-hmm. So it's really taking a step back to be able to see what this emotion is about and is identifying the causal factors a part of that? 
Yes, so that's one that's one aspect of it. There are other aspects of being able to step out. You know, often when people are stuck in an emotion, they might only be seeing things from their perspective. You know, I'm so angry, I'm so upset, I'm so focused on being right. Um, and sometimes what happens is when people are in this situation, they become so focused on, you know, my boss is a fraud or my, my co-worker uh, doesn't pull her weight. We become so focused on being right that we stop losing or, or stop focusing mm. on this idea of am I doing what serves me? You know, am I, am I doing something that makes sense in this situation? Mm. Um, am I contributing to my career here? Like what am I actually doing in this situation? And so another aspect of stepping out of our emotions is being able to perspective take. You know, if, if someone, if the, the wisest career advisor on earth were advising me in this situation, what kind of advice would they give me? Um, often when we're stuck in a situation, we're only seeing it from our perspective. Um, but being able to step out of emotions is also when we broaden the perspective, we mm -hmm. must see an alternative view or a different way forward. So... Uh Showing up, stepping out so that you can see what's happening in your emotional life and identify it, label it, has so many benefits. How does that then take you to action? So I'm going to use that idea that we spoke about earlier, this idea between stimulus and response. There is a space, and in that space is our power to choose. And in that choice lies our growth and freedom. So the four components or four key ideas of emotional agility are this idea, firstly, of showing up, secondly, stepping out. The third is walking your why, being able to understand who you want to be in this situation. Mm -hmm. uh, what values do you want to bring to it? Uh, who is the kind of person or parent or leader that you want to be? And so this idea of walking your why is really about being able to connect in a, a very deep and very specific way with what your core values are. Now, the first thing that I'll say is that values often have bad press. You know, they, they often have, have this level of, gee, they feel really abstract or they feel really cynical because, you know, businesses have them on walls and they feel uh, like things that we can't really connect with. Um, hmm. And yet what we know is that all of us in society are subject to what is called social contagion. Social contagion is the idea that uh, when someone goes to a meeting with a cell phone, everyone's likely to take out their cell phones. Um, when one person's stressed, everyone gets stressed. In fact, large-scale epidemiological studies show that uh, if someone within your social network gets divorced or puts on weight, you are more likely to get divorced or put on weight. So what happens is without even realizing it, we often start to absorb other people's values, other people's emotions, other people's behaviors. Um, one study that I found really interesting was that if you are trying to lose weight, you're trying to be healthy, and you go on an airplane and your seat partner buys candy, even if you do not know that person, you are 70% more likely to buy candy. Wow. Now, how does this impact us? What it can mean is that with social media, with uh you know, stress and chaos and complexity, we can often land up living a life that is actually disconnected with who we are and what we want to be. Mm -hmm. And so what's really fascinating is you start saying, well, what protects us from social contagion? What protects us from this kind of trigger, triggered autopilot response 
in the world. And what we know is that when people bring their values front and center, when they start saying things like, this is what I care about. Mm -hmm. I care about collaboration. I care about fairness or I care about growth, whatever it is for that person, that not only does it protect us from social contagion, um, but it actually starts to become an active choice-based behavior that we can imbue in our day-to-day lives. So it's... So what do you do to help people to... Um, how do you help people identify what those core values are in a way that feels true and real and uh, not the kind of icky, inauthentic sign on the wall? Well, the first thing I would say is go to your difficult emotions. Difficult Mm -hmm. emotions, again, are often signposts of things that we care about. Mm -hmm. Um, When you're feeling frustrated at work, it might be a signpost that there's not enough growth or there's not enough friendship or there's not enough collaboration um when you feel really you know guilt as a parent for instance Mm -hmm. um that might be a signpost to you that you really value presence and connectedness with your kids and that that is off kilter at the moment Mm -hmm. now again it doesn't mean because you experience an emotion that emotion is fact these emotions are data not directions Um, But the first thing that I'd say is that our difficult emotions often are a source of information about what we care about. Mm -hmm. Um, The second thing that I would say is think about your day. What did you do today that was worthwhile? Not what was fun, because often the stuff that's fun, you know, going to a party and getting drunk each night, it might sound fun, uh, but but it's not necessarily something that feels worthwhile. And often... When we think about what did we do that is worthwhile, those, again, are the kinds of things that start to signpost our values, things that we care about. The Mm -hmm. third thing I'll say for people who are interested in this is that I've actually got a free quiz on my website, susandavid.com forward slash learn. And in that, we've got a whole, it's an emotional agility quiz, and it's completely free, and there are a whole lot of values that are listed with descriptions that help people to get a more granular sense as to what their values might be. And of course, I talk about this in the book as well. But those are just some ways to start to surface these core values for ourselves. And to to walk the why, as you put it, uh, to, to bring those into those choice points, those moments when you really need to be mindful and intentional and conscious and deliberate about how you're going to be, how you're going to act uh, in any situation, uh, what's, the, what's the key to the kind of uh, practice or um, gaining of habit strength or training that's required to overcome the habitual reactive impulse? Well, the first uh, very important thing is that usually our habitual impulses um, are habitual by definition. So we often have clues as to, gee, you know, I always react in that way when I am feeling undermined. Or, gee, like this is something that really uh, triggers me in a particular way. Mm -hmm. So one wonderful thing about habitual responses is that they also clue us in in very, very specific ways that allow us to understand that, like, there's this way that I keep acting that is against what is important to me. Mm-hmm. So this is something that's really, really important. The second thing is 
try to look in your life at things that you avoid. Uh, if we, for instance, you know, we're thinking about the workplace, uh, often people will avoid having a difficult conversation because it's difficult. You know, by definition, it's a difficult thing to do. Um, what we know from the research is when people start saying things like, well, I have to do it. You know, it's part of my KPIs. It's part of my demands in my job. I have to do it. We get resentful and we might have the conversation, but we don't do it well. Mm-hmm. If, however, you start surfacing a value and you start saying, you know, fairness, for instance, is important to me. How fair is it if I don't have this conversation? Like, how fair is it to the individual? How fair is it to me? How fair is it to the team? What we know is that just bringing that value front of mind allows us then to move into the conversation in a way that's not directed in a have-to way, but it's rather directed in a want-to way. That we actually, when we, we start to tap into our values, it actually kind of frees us up to mm-hmm. begin to behave intentionally in ways that are really, really powerful when we look at how people sustain changes in their health lives, for instance, or how people sustain changes in the way they parent. Simply feeling like I have to do something out of obligation or shame or guilt actually has the opposite effect. It undermines Hmm. our ability to change behavior. Uh, Whereas when we surface a a values-based goal, I want to do this because this is congruent with this particular value of mine. Mm-hmm. It actually sustains the behavior over the longer term. It gives it meaning and purpose and, and infuses it with a, a kind of uh, motivation that uh, that is, of course, absent, uh, even negated and suppressed if it's out of obligation or duty that one is acting. Yes. Yes. In, in that sense, values become completely liberating. Now, this doesn't mean you're going to be you're going to be free of conflict. You know, as uh, often when people talk about values, they'll say things like, you know, my values are in conflict. My values, you know, for instance, I value work and I also value parenting, for instance. That's mm-hmm. a very, very common one that comes up. You know, my values are in conflict. And what I would suggest is that often it's not the case. You know, if you imagine a diamond, uh, you've got all these different facets to a diamond and one facet may be facing you front and center, but it doesn't mean that the other facets don't exist. So you may value work, but you also may value, you know, putting food on the table for your kids. Um, and so it's not an either or, and you may value presence with your children. So it's less about values conflicts and it's often more about goals conflicts. A goal is I've got a goal to be at my child's recital at this particular time. And I've also got a goal to be at this work meeting. Mm -hmm. And sometimes what we think of as values conflicts are actually goals conflicts. They're conflicts in goals. Often what about that, you know, by the fact that we are, and I know this sounds trite to say, but I think that as human beings, we often need to remind ourselves of this, that, you know, we, we, we mortals and we can't be in two places at once. <laughs> Sometimes we've got to make difficult decisions. Sure. Um, but when we make that difficult decision with the knowledge that, you know, I'm, I'm, say, choosing to go on this work trip, but I also value my children. And so when I call them, I'm going to be present mm-hmm. in that call and not typing emails at the same time. Mm-hmm. What it does is it allows us to make choices that feel so much more 
liberating. They're not necessarily easy, but they're liberating in, in a very profound way. And, and still might be tinged with some sense of regret and sadness. That's yeah. also a part of it if you can't be part in two places it. at once. So, so say more, if you can, about this distinction between goals and values and how by identifying the conflict in goals, you, you find uh, more uh, coherence, if I can use that term. So a very important aspect of this is moving away from this idea that my goal, my, my values are in conflict. Um, your values have evolved. Your values will continue to evolve, but your values are yours, and they're not necessarily in conflict. What then becomes a situation here is not about, like, have I got the wrong or right value, but rather being able to look at the very specific situation at hand and say, you know, I've got these two goals in this situation. You know, what what are the pros and cons of this particular goal and what are the pros and cons of that particular goal? And when we start uh, to focus much more on the specifics of the opportunity as it currently exists and what the pros and cons are, we're able to make just cleaner decisions about how we spend our time, what we spend our time on. And we're also recognizing, again, that you may choose to do something because you can't be in two places at once. You may choose to do something that takes you to a location that means that you you know, miss an important date in your child's life, as an example. Um, but you're doing it with the knowledge of what the gains are and what the losses are. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and you yeah. may choose to do it once, you may not choose to do it a second time, or you may, you know, flip them around. Um, but what again becomes important here is I think human beings we we know at heart that we are mortal. We know at heart that we can't be in two places at once. And yet we are a never ending source of self flagellation and we often need to remind ourselves to be compassionate mm-hmm. with ourselves, that we're doing the best we can mm-hmm. with who we are, with what we've got, and with the resources and the opportunities that we've been given in life. And that self-compassion is a very important part of um, being able to move through life it's, and it's, being it's, able to make effective choices. It's where it must begin. Um, let, let's spend a bit of time on the last piece, moving on. Tell us essentially what that, uh, what, what the key principles for action are uh, in, in light of uh, these ideas and practices for gaining greater agility. Absolutely. So just to recap, we've got showing up, we've got stepping out, we've got walking your wire, and we've got moving on. And the idea behind moving on is about being able to make values connected changes in our lives at its most essential. Mm-hmm. Um, so this includes the ideas that I spoke to a little bit earlier, which is moving from our have-to goals. You know, I have to be on dare duty. I have to give people feedback. I have to go to another meeting. Um, being able to surface a little bit of our want-to goals. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little less is, exhausting, I imagine. Oh, Absolutely, because we all climb into prisons. You know, we we climb Mm. into these self-made prisons of language. I have to do this, and I have to do that, and I have to do the next thing. And often what we forget is that, you know, we we may want to go to the meeting because we value a particular outcome for the client, or 
we value a particular conversation with a team or we have an opportunity to have real connection with our children. And so often what we do is we start to wrap ourselves in language that becomes a prison uh, and mm. it's just not effective. And so part of moving on is about this difference between want to and have to and being mm. able to recognize the importance of that difference. So important. And then, yeah, and then I also talk in this moving on part about how you start now making new habits that are values aligned, values connected, and therefore more sustainable so that when you are stressed, when you are time pressured, that you're able to make choices that are more uh, values congruent. And so I give very, very practical examples about how we can make values aligned shifts in our lives that are habitual. Can you give us one example, perhaps one of your favorites? Uh, Well, just a very quick example. Uh, We were talking about presence and connectedness with kids. And I know your show covers all aspects. So you come home from work and you're feeling stressed and you find that you have this beautiful opportunity with your children each night, but you use it uh, not effectively. You bring your cell phone to the table. Mm, You connect it. Okay. So what you've got is you've already got a habit, and that habit is that you come home and you put your car keys in a particular drawer. One way that we can effectively change habits is what is called piggybacking. Piggybacking is when you have a pre-existing habit and you add a new habit onto the pre-existing habit. The cell phone goes with the car keys. Exactly. I like it. That's called piggybacking. You can, you know, add fruit to your cereal every morning. But there's very, very (laughs) specific ways that you can change habits. That's that's a lovely example, uh, and you can see how just by being conscious and deliberate about the choice of your actions, you you can become closer and closer to being aligned in terms of your your actions and your values, which is what we are aspiring to do, and has all kinds of positive benefits. Uh, Susan, there's one more question I want to ask you, and that is a question that I've been asking all the guests on this show this year because I think it's such an important one. We touched on it briefly. Uh, and it is about compassion. How do you bring compassion to your working life? I bring compassion in two ways. The first is what I spoke about earlier, which is self-compassion. Um, I think all of us as human beings often feel we're in a never-ending Iron Man or Iron Woman competition. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's really important to remind ourselves, and I do remind myself, that I'm doing the best that I can with the context that I've been given and with the resources that I've been given in life. Um, And then I think the other part of compassion is being able to extend compassion to others. And a core part of how we do this uh, as it relates to emotional agility is moving from the space of being stuck in my sense of rightness Mm. And instead, moving to a space where we're able to set ourselves, you know, if, if the gods are right came down and said, you know, you are right, your boss is a fraud or your col- colleague is an idiot, like, you know what, you are right, okay? You still get to choose who you want to be in that situation, what person you want to be. Mm-hmm. And I think we so often become so focused on being right that we forget that we are a person connecting with a person around something that has value to both of us. And I think being able to ask ourselves that question more often, if someone told me I was right in this situation and I knew I was right, but I still get to choose to be someone here Mm. in a way that is values aligned, what does that look like? I think that can be really 
powerful compassion in action. Indeed. Susan, um, we have to say farewell. How can people find out more about your work? So my book, Emotional Agility, my TED Talk is called The Gift and Power of Emotional Courage. And my free quiz, susandavid.com forward slash learn. Wonderful. Susan, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.